Question. Was the Columbian Exchange good or bad? My mom is a great cook. I grew up loving food mainly because of her. She made roasts, potatoes, stuffing, amazing breakfasts. But what I would always ask for when I got to pick whatever meal it happened to be, I would ask for spaghetti and meatballs. I'm starting out this episode discussing food, not because I've changed the name to A Question of Culinary Pursuits. No, it's because the meal I always ask for is usually thought of as Italian. Really, is there anything more Italian than spaghetti and meatballs? I'll be honest, when I first started writing this episode, I actually thought there wasn't. But it turns out that spaghetti and meatballs are not Italian. In her article for the Smithsonian Magazine titled, Is Spaghetti and Meatballs Italian? Shailene Esposito looks at the origins and, spoilers, it's not actually Italian. It is Italian-American. Turns out Italian immigrants coming from the home country and were actually focusing on the southern part of the peninsula uh, of Italy and Sicily rather than the northern part, those immigrants were able to buy meat for the first time. They actually had money now and so made large meatballs. They really enjoyed that kind of thing and added to it marinara sauce. Marinara actually comes from the root mariners uh, because the combination of garlic, onion, and tomatoes you find in marinara sauce could be kind of whipped together quickly uh, as soon as a wife saw her husband coming in on the ship, uh, hence marinara, and then placed on a bed of spaghetti, uh, spaghetti being a cheap pasta from the time period. It's actually a really fun article. I'll put a link to it on the show notes at aquestionofhistory.weebly.com. Spaghetti and meatballs, a mainstay of Italian-American cooking, shows how much the movement of food from one area to another can change how people view and perceive things. All these moves made it possible for one of my favorite foods to become an Italian-American and, actually in my family, Scandinavian-American, a mainstay of the household. But how did the ingredients of this apparently wholly American dish get to where they are. In other words, how does pasta from China, meatballs from Scandinavia, garlic and onions from Eurasia, and tomatoes from America get to come together to create this amazing dish? Well, we find our answers in what's called the Columbian Exchange. Chapter 1. What is the Columbian Exchange? Imagine you are of the Comanche Nation around the year 1700 AD. Your tribe is broken off from the Shoshones of modern-day Illinois and moved south. To actually move your belongings, you either have to carry them on your back or use dogs. That's when you come across a large animal, not as large as a bison, which is the largest animal you as a Comanche know of, but still large. You realize very quickly this is not a danger to you, but could be, if tamed, a prime ally. You and your people tame the animal, and almost overnight your culture changes. Instead of being sedentary, you're able to move around and move quickly. You and your Comanche comrades decide two things. First, 
you have no need to stay in one spot anymore. And second, you need to expand. Your culture goes from one of sedentary farmers to mobile warrior as you and your people expand your territory. As you expand, you encounter and usually end up fighting groups like the Apache, the Utes, and the Spanish. Your descendants will increase their territory over the coming generations, expanding to much of modern-day Texas, Arkansas, Oklahoma, Kansas, Colorado, and New Mexico. None of this would have been possible without the horse. Indeed, the Comanche people would not have been as successful as they were without the Columbian Exchange. The Columbian Exchange is the intentional and unintentional movement of humans, animals, plants, and microorganisms across the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. According to Charles Mann in his book 1493, the people taking part in the Columbian Exchange did not really understand what was happening. The change was bigger than any one person, or really every person who was living through it at the time, could understand. In this chapter, we are going to take a look at three of the things that made the transoceanic trips. The first of these things is disease, which spread with devastating effect. The second topic will be horses, an animal which, as we saw in this introduction, changed the power structure of North America in the 18th and 19th centuries. Thirdly, we'll look at plants, specifically food plants. The movement of plants across the oceans dramatically changed both Europe and the Americas, which is what we're gonna focus on today. Much has been discussed about the toll European diseases had on native populations. In the podcast on Christopher Columbus, that's episode two if you're interested, I briefly mentioned that diseases probably wiped out somewhere around 95% of the population of the Americas. Also mentioned in the episode was the Black Death, the plague which devastated Europe during the Middle Ages and took among the overall population between 25 and 30%. Uh, The death toll is actually much higher in cities Uh, sometimes as bad as 70% or higher. So what made the number of deaths in the Americas, that's the 95% number, so much worse than that of really even the worst plague in European history? What was it that allowed the native peoples to be almost completely wiped out by disease to the point where small groups of Europeans were able to dominate the natives on two continents, North and South America? It turns out that the native populations of the Americas were living in a sort of bubble where they were protected from disease prior to the European conquest. First, they lacked genetic diversity. As many of us learned in our elementary school, our immune system is set up like the FBI. Oh, you, you didn't learn that? Well, I did. I actually remember a video uh, when I was young, uh, I watched in third grade, that described the immune system as the FBI. Basically, the cartoon showed a white blood cell sitting at a desk when an alarm goes off. A picture shows up on the desk of a villain, in this case, influenza. The desk jockey white blood cell starts calling in his agents and copies of himself uh, to go after the bad guy, the flu virus. I always felt this was a decent representation, even if it did leave me thinking of my body as a big police department. The problem natives had was the information that was passed down from generation to generation, genetically speaking, again, this is where our FBI agents come in, uh, was relatively small. Uh, As the humans that 
made their way to the Americas over 10,000 years ago were relatively a small group of people and had very little need for genetic mutations. There just weren't that many diseases coming with them at the time. Along with the lack of genetic diversity, at least compared to that of Eurasia, the pre-contact Americans didn't have livestock. Uh, There was domestication in the Americas, but not on the scale of Eurasia. Therefore, there was no transfer of germs through cows or goat's milk, because there were no cows or goats. There were no horses, which we will discuss in a minute. Massive spreaders of disease, both from themselves and people who were riding them. There were no hogs, pigs, uh, which are large harbingers of disease. The few domesticated animals found in the Americas, dogs, turkeys, llamas, are relatively free of bacteria and viruses that are harmful to humans. On the other hand, the animals coming from Europe were full of diseases. Diseases that were devastating to the people they were coming into contact with. A short list compiled by Jared Diamond in his book Guns, Germs, and Steel include smallpox, measles, influenza, and typhus. Others that Charles Mann would add from 1493 are malaria and yellow fever. These diseases combined to wipe out entire civilizations. To give an example, uh, using numbers most of us can grasp, a Mandan tribe in 1837 came into contact with smallpox. Of the 2,000 originally in the community, less than 40 survived. The disease spread over the course of only a few weeks as well. The staggering loss of life were relatively uniform throughout the Americas, which if you Again, kind of transpose that leads to about 95% of the people dying off, which is crazy. As the diseases spread, they brought death with them. Disease was not spread by humans entirely, though. As described earlier, animals like pigs had a large impact. Nothing, though, had as widespread or as quick an impact as the first animal to make contact with the natives, especially in the Great Plains region, the horse. Prior to Columbus, horses had existed in the Americas only until the last ice age, around 12,000 years ago. You can go back and listen to episode one if you'd like to learn more about that topic. For the next 11,000 years, people in the Americas had to get along without horses. Then in the 1500s came the Spanish. Over time, horses escaped and became wild and moved quickly to the places which best suited them, the Great Plains specifically. Once the native peoples realized how powerful a tool the horses could be, everything changed. Nomadic peoples like the Comanche, the Lakota, the Apache, they used horses to their advantage. The Comanche especially became feared as they gobbled up more and more territory. Sedentary tribes like the Mandan were wiped out, partially because of war, but mostly because of disease like smallpox, which spreads more quickly through sedentary agricultural communities than it does hunter-gatherer communities. A double whammy of war and disease brought on by the horse. The Comanche in particular changed. The tribe had been a sedentary offshoot of the Shoshone who settled in modern-day North Arkansas and Southern Missouri. They would hunt, but also plant, probably maize and beans. Their lives were relatively free of conflict. That is until everything really changes around 1700, as stated before, with the introduction of the horse. The horses that the Comanche come into contact with 
were probably horses that had escaped during the Pueblo Revolt in 1680 against the Spanish and moved across the Great Plains. The wide open spaces of the plains and the plentiful food supply made it a prime spot for them. As they moved east, they came into contact with different groups of people, one of which were the Comanche. What made the Comanche successful is how quickly they came to adopt the horse into their culture. They were widely considered to be the first group to do so and the most militant. Growing up, I watched a lot of old westerns with my dad. We would watch movies starring Clint Eastwood, like the outlaw Josie Wales. But when it came to westerns, there was really one name that topped everyone else, and that was John Wayne. Wayne's name is the biggest in westerns, which really should not come as any surprise to anyone who's ever watched a western movie. According to IMDb, Wayne was in 178 films in his career, spanning from 1926 to 1976. Most of them were westerns. One of the best films Wayne ever made, both critically and in the box office, was right in the middle of his career in 1956, The Searchers. The Searchers takes place in Texas and deals with a man, played by Wayne, going in search of, yes, the title gives it away, a niece that has been captured. The group that kidnapped his niece? The Comanche. As a child, this was my first encounter with the Comanche, but it would not be the last. The Comanche have been antagonists in countless Hollywood productions over the years, and not without good reason. In an interview he did with NPR's Fresh Air in 2011, author S.C. Gwynn describes the Comanche as, quote, incredibly warlike. They swept everyone off the southern plains. They nearly exterminated the Apaches, end quote. Gwynn goes on to describe the Comanches as similar to the Goths, Vikings, and Celts in Europe, barbarian hordes sweeping across the plains. While those groups make sense, I think the best likeness is the last one that Gwynn talks about, the Mongols. When people speak of both the Comanche and the Mongols, they speak of warriors being one with their horses. While the impact may not have been the same, and there really is no group comparable to the Mongols in the history of the world, the mastery of the horse and horse combat compared to all the others of their time period is really pretty similar. In North America, the Comanche were the horse culture. That culture had changed, though, and not just that of the Comanche. The Lakota of the Northern Plains as well used the horse to great effect both militarily and in hunting. This is best illustrated today by the Crazy Horse Monument that is being carved into the Black Hills of South Dakota. The monument, which when completed, will be larger than Mount Rushmore, shows Crazy Horse pointing over the Black Hills atop his horse. Plus, Crazy Horse's name actually has a horse in the name, so that is kind of important. Whole ways of life changed due to the horse. Staying in one place was no longer needed, so groups actually reverted back from agricultural societies, staying in one place and farming, to mobile nomadic societies. Following the buffalo was the way of life for both the Lakota and Dakota peoples. The same can be said of the Comanche. While a return to nomadic lifestyle was one of the side effects of the introduction of the horse, social stratification was another. Wealth in societies became increasingly disparate. 
As we see today, with the massive amounts of wealth going to a small number of people, native cultures, including the Comanche, started to view wealth in different terms. Where we use dollars, euros, pounds, etc. to show our wealth today, the Comanche used the horse. The number of horses a man owned became the symbol of the wealth the man had, with some people having hundreds of horses, while others had none. The Comanche and other horse tribes went from a communal system of living to a socially stratified system of haves and have-nots. Life had changed very much on the Great Plains because of the horse. While ways of life were changing on the western side of the Atlantic Ocean due to the Columbian Exchange, the eastern side was also seeing a large shift, especially when it came to social norms in their diets. One of my favorite holidays is Thanksgiving. I love Thanksgiving because I love the game of football, but as you may have guessed from the introduction to this podcast today, I also love the Thanksgiving meal. My family, made up of hearty Swedes, Danes, and Norwegians, would eat healthy portions. I actually always find it interesting when people say healthy portion, they mean a portion which leaves a person ready to burst and unable to move for the next 24 hours, but... Anyway, we ate healthy portions of mashed potatoes, squash, sweet potatoes, corn, turkey, pumpkin pie. Ah, so good. Anyway, sorry, I, I lost myself there. What I find interesting today is that this traditional Thanksgiving meal that many of us grew up with is truly an American creation. Nearly everything on our plates on Thanksgiving Day for appetizers, main course, dessert, it all originally came from the Americas. These Thanksgiving Day mainstays actually made it across the ocean to Europe before coming back to the Americas with the immigrants later on. The food with the largest impact in Europe are potatoes. Potatoes, though, took a while to catch on in Europe, but when they did, they took over in a big way. The potato's versatility and ease of planting made it a strong crop to grow. One of the oddities dealing with the potato is the lack of variation. In Peru, the home of the potato, there are nearly countless variations coming in all shapes, sizes, and even colors. In Europe, and now in the United States, we don't see that variety. That's mainly because the potato that we use comes from a very small genetic sample that took root during the French Revolution. And when I say took root, I mean it literally took root. Uh, The potatoes that were in France at the time were cut up and planted to make most of the potatoes we have today. Which means outside of Peru, there's very little genetic variation from one potato to the next. Now that we have an idea of what some of the effects were between Europe and the Americas, Let's look at some of the effects of the exchange. Chapter 2, European Takeover of the Continent. Imagine you're living in England in 1600. You open up your laptop, go to Google, and search for Craigslist, because you're looking for a job. I, I realize we're a little bit off in the time periods, but just use your imagination. Anyway, imagine you're checking out Craigslist for a job, and you come across this ad. Wanted. An adventurous type who is willing to take big risks 
to reap even bigger rewards, is ready to join the exotic world of the Americas with a high probability of finding a massive amount of gold and silver. Come find your riches in Virginia, posted by the Virginia Company. While obviously fictitious, this could have been something the Virginia Company might have used to draw people to Jamestown. I won't get into the most intriguing story to come out of Jamestown, that of Pocahontas and John Smith. Assuming you don't or didn't go over this story in your classes in school, and even if you did, I would suggest listening to the Myths and Legends podcast, episodes 36A and 36B, on the true story of John Smith and Pocahontas. Very good podcast overall. I can't recommend it enough. Um, He usually deals with myths and legends, obviously, but he decided that the story here was more interesting. Uh, The real story was more interesting, and I think it's worth taking a listen to. So check that out. I will post a link to the podcast and those episodes on the website. Even though I'm not going to go over the Pocahontas story, I do want to give you some of the basics of Jamestown. The big risks from our fictional want ad were, in fact, monumental. In the first couple years of Jamestown existence, there were two separate starving times. Of the roughly 7,000 people sent to colonize Jamestown, only around 1,000 survived. While attack from the surrounding locals was part of it, most of the colonists died from disease and starvation. But again, you're still looking at disease, starvation, attack from locals, it's a bad deal. The first of the starving times came about because the colonists that were sent over were noble gentry from England, and they didn't work. This created a problem when no one grew food, and they starved because it was beneath their class. The second starving time occurred because of the promise of gold and silver. It never actually panned out. There was a belief that because silver and gold had been found in the mountainous regions of Central and South America, the Atlantic shoreline of North America, or Virginia in this case, would have the same. Uh, Spoilers, it didn't. Instead, the colonists had to make money some other way. Being good entrepreneurs, they decided they were going to create demand. What to plant? Couldn't plant food because wheat didn't grow very well in the area. Rice just wasn't going to sell, but something definitely grew very well in Virginia. And that something was tobacco. Smoking, or drinking smoke as it was called at the time, was something that hadn't been done prior to the Columbian Exchange because, surprise, tobacco was another emigrant from the Americas. What should come as no surprise to us today, tobacco which contains nicotine, an extremely addictive substance, became wildly popular in Europe. It actually became very popular in China as well, which just increased the demand for the plant. With no gold or silver to be found in the area, the Jamestown colonists turned to tobacco as the one cash crop. The problem they encountered, and the reason for the second starving time, was actually self-made. They planted only tobacco forgetting that they might need to eat. So really 0 for 2 on the whole brains thing when it comes to planting. While Jamestown was, really besides tobacco, for all intents and purposes, a failure, 
It shows the zeal with which the Europeans showed by placing colonies in the Americas. They were willing to take massive losses, again, in this case, roughly 6,000 people, to put colonies in the New World. European colonies sprang up all around the east coast of the Americas and started to move inland. What allowed the Europeans so much space to land their colonies? Well, the death of the native populations. As mentioned before, the loss of Native American life after European contact was catastrophic. Loss of life, though, wasn't the only thing that changed with the coming of the Europeans. The climate also changed. Chapter 3, Climate Change Due to the Columbian Exchange. Around the year 1800 AD, it was said that a squirrel could travel from the Atlantic Ocean to the Mississippi River without touching the ground because there were so many trees. It was long assumed that this was the way things were really for thousands of years until European contact. What we now know, though, is this tree-filled land was not the norm, but a byproduct of the Columbian Exchange. Prior to the exchange, much of the land was open, so open, in fact, that bison are believed to have roamed as far west as the Rocky Mountains to as far east as New York State. How was this possible? Well, fires. More specifically, man-made fires. Fires would be deliberately set in order to clear out dead trees, but also the undergrowth and make it possible for the land to be planted. Planting prior to the Columbian Exchange was different than we think of today. The acre upon acre of rows of corn and beans are not what would have been seen prior to European conquest. As has been mentioned, there were no large domesticated animals to help with farming. Instead, natives would set large forest fires and use the ashes to plant their crops, a combination of crops called milpa, that's maize, beans, and squash all planted together. That would be the basis for many of the Native Americans' diet. Why would burning trees to create farmland affect the climate? Well, as we know today, burning fuel and releasing carbon dioxide into the environment tends to warm things up. Today we plant trees to try to combat climate change and for good reason. Trees are basically carbon sponges taking in carbon dioxide and releasing oxygen. Now, imagine if all the land we use for farming around the world today was allowed to grow what it will, or grow trees. Within, say, 20 years, we would have massive forests sucking in massive amounts of CO2, inevitably lowering the temperature of the Earth's climate. This obviously wouldn't work, because humans rely on that land to produce enough food to support the nearly 7.5 billion people here. Massive famine, die-off, really just bad things would happen if we did that. Now, something very similar happened around the time of European contact in the 1500s. As mentioned earlier, around 95% of the native population died. Unlike our fictional scenario, the die-off here occurred first. Then the reforestation took place. So much reforestation that there were many, many millions of those carbon sponges now cooling the atmosphere. The atmosphere cooled so much, in fact, we have what is called the Little Ice Age. A period from approximately 1550 to 1750, the Little Ice Age wreaked havoc on people 
and countries around the world, leading to famine and death. So, now we know more about the Columbian Exchange than we did before the start of this program. We know there were both positive and negative consequences. But, back to the original question, was the Columbian Exchange good or bad? Chapter 4, Reworking the Question. We now know how things changed with the Columbian Exchange. We know that people shifted from one continent to the others, and we learned they brought their animals with them. We learned their food moved back and forth during the exchange. People in Europe came to rely on foods like potatoes and corn. People in the Americas came to rely on animals like the horse. All the shifting of these things and ideas changed the dynamics on both continents. So was the exchange good or bad? One idea I have always tried to instill in my students is that if a question or answer seems too simple, it probably is. I also have always tried to help students understand that the world is not made of dichotomies. A dichotomy is something that can be one of two things. And the problem with dichotomies is that they present the world as overly simple. When looking at the Columbian Exchange, we need to rework the question because it can be seen as both good and bad, depending on who or what you are. There were winners and losers in the exchange, and it becomes more than just Europeans won and Native Americans lost, which is often how the answer is presented. While Europeans, on the whole, were substantially the winners, the six out of 7,000 people who died trying to settle Jamestown probably would think differently. The reverse could be said of the Comanche. Their empire in the middle of what is today the United States and lasted for nearly 200 years would probably never have existed had it not been for the horse. They can be seen as winners. While we often don't think of things as winners, the potato was a winner in its proliferation. Spain, which I neglected to talk much about for a lengthier background of Spain, check out episode two again. Spain was a winner in the short run as it dominated Europe for the century following Columbus but the loser in the long run is countries like England and France beat Spain at their own game in colonization. A switch in perspectives is needed to occur for a better question to be asked. So I'll ask you, which aspect of the Columbian exchange were positive and which were negative? And from whose perspective could they be viewed as such? This has been a question of history. like to contact us here at A Question of History, and if you have any ideas for shows or things you want to mention, uh, please do. Our email address is questionofhistory at gmail.com. We are also on Twitter. Our handle is at Q of Hist. That's at Q-O-F-H-I-S-T. And finally, uh, you can contact us through our website. That's a questionofhistory.weebly.com. Thanks so much for listening.